Um, anything else before we jump in? I don't think so. Except to say that the Princess Mononoke dub is literally perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's true. I love all versions of Princess Mononoke, but only the English dub has Gillian Anderson as a wolf that might eat you. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and uh, I've got nothing special going on today. It's a random Monday evening here in June, and we're all just kind of living our lives. Joining me, as always, is my co-host. Martha Sullivan, teen librarian, and officially two weeks out from the end of her work-from-home sentence. Oh, interesting. Not feeling great about it, not going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. Although you go... I'm, our building is still not open yet, mm. so that makes me feel better. Um, when you go back, is there going to be a period where you and your coworkers will be in the building, but it is still closed to, uh, you know, regulars? Yes, we do not actually have an official opening date yet. Hmm. We are just starting to cycle some people back into the building for work as it is available. Um, and because I think that the uh, drive through hold service that we have started uh, needs more hands mm. on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're still going to be on a limited staff. I will only be in three days a week uh, and teleworking the rest of the week. Um and I think it's it's also to iron out how our scheduling is working and to see that in action. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like I said, we don't have an open to the public date yet. Um, how I feel about being back at work will be significantly impacted by whatever our policies end up being for when that happens. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, I, I know uh, uh, regular viewers will know that my wife, Marin, is also a librarian. Um, she's been going back into her building um, for the last two weeks uh, every day, and today is the first day back with patrons. Um, but she felt oh, she felt comfortable with the, you know, the, the policies and the decisions, like it seems like her her staff and, and her director are doing as much as they can to limit patron time inside um, and limit, you know, as much as possible. Spread. So here's the big here's the big question. Are they requiring patrons to wear masks when they come into the building? They cannot require patrons to wear masks. They are why not? Encouraging... I have heard that from other libraries. I don't understand why that's true. I I, I mean I don't either. Um, I do know that they they are, um, basically if a patron doesn't have a mask, they're not required to go within six feet of the patron. So if the patron's like, I need some help with the computer, it's like, yep, sorry, I'm gonna stand over here, so I'm not gonna be that helpful. See, this you is should the, maybe this is, wear a mask. This is the thing that's making me really nervous because I keep hearing from librarians who work in buildings that are opening and for some reason have decided that they cannot require patrons to wear a mask. And I don't know why that's true. If you want to go to the grocery store in Illinois, or at least in Oak Park, 
you have to be wearing a mask. Like, they won't let you in. Right. I could and see it. I guess the answer is that a library is a government building or a municipal building. Right. But with so much, with so many statements, like definitive statements from the CDC, this seems like a no-brainer to me. And especially now, a lot of studies are coming out, like, literally just this week and last week touting like masks are way more beneficial than like anyone thought um like yes. more beneficial than social distancing is wearing a mask um so yeah you know listeners wear a mask uh yeah, when, when you're going out in public this is the thing that's making me nervous i'm hesitant to talk too much about my personal feelings about it yeah in a public forum um but yeah my administration has not made a definitive statement about that yet and that will pretty solidly determine um how i feel about being back in the building mm-hmm. because i don't know if anyone's noticed the pandemic's not over yet in fact it's kind <laughs> of ticking up in some places just because we have all decided that we're bored <laughs> um but anyway i yeah. digress yeah um <laughs> well uh this is our our mandatory uh you know covid talk uh as as is required by law these days on any podcast Um, so, uh, this episode is a little bit different. Uh, we're doing a deep dive on the idea of adaptation by looking at a single source and multiple adaptations of it. So our original source material is the, uh, 1986-87 seminal graphic novel Watchmen by Alan Moore and David Gibbons, um, which was adapted famously in 2009 by Zack Snyder into a major motion picture, and more recently just, oh no, was it just last year? Uh, uh, yep. By Damon Lindelof for HBO as a TV series. Um, it finished in October. No. Of 2019? Yes. Of 2019, yeah. Wow, that was 800 years ago. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so the, 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 they are two radically different adaptations, uh, and so we're sort of going to be exploring that. Um this is a, an idea that's been on my mind for a while, but we also wanted to, uh, you know, we wanted to sort of address it now because of what what both sort of Watchmen is about and what the 2019 adaptation did with it, uh, especially vis-a-vis things like policing and uh, racial tension in America, which are incredibly relevant uh, today right now. Um, One might even argue coming to a head. Yes. Um but before we get into all of that, it's only fair to start on a bit of a lighter note by just uh, telling you what's stuck in our heads this week. Uh, so, Martha, what do you want to share? Uh, I want to share that I have never watched Survivor before, and now I am almost done with the first season. Hmm. Um, a lot of what is actually stuck in my head is stuff that we're going to be talking about next episode, so I didn't want to bring it up kind of early. Um but I, I am a reality TV person, um, and for some reason, Survivor has never been part of my uh, kind of habitual watching. So mm-hmm. I decided, basically because some of the podcasters that I listen to are extremely involved in it, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done with True Blood, I don't really have anything else that's like grabbing me. I can have this on while I am doing other stuff. I don't have to pay full attention to it. 
uh, and it will never run out. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about getting to the end and not having anything uh, to follow up. So yeah, I am almost done with the first season. Uh, I, I also have never watched any Survivor, but uh, reality TV, with the noted exception of the Great British Baking Show, uh, has never been in my wheelhouse. Um, uh, my understanding is that there are about 8 million seasons of Survivor, though, uh, and there it's various spin-off like shows. 40? I think they're doing <laughs> season 40 now. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're fine. The first season is, let's see, when did it air? It was like 2002? Three? It was like during a, a Writers Guild strike, wasn't it? 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the first season in Borneo aired in 2000. Uh, the film quality is very bad. Um, <laughs> and it actually views... I, I'm not going to watch all the seasons. I've been looking around. There are a lot of recommended, like, if you're just now getting into Survivor, here are the seasons that you can skip, mm -hmm. uh, which is good because I don't actually want to watch some 600 <laughs> episodes of this show. Um, but yeah, it is very 2000s just in terms of the aesthetic mm -hmm. uh you can also tell that it's pretty much the beginning like i i would be hard pressed to tell you what reality tv came before survivor so a lot of the kind of reality tropes particularly for reality competition tropes were new or hadn't been invented yet so like it's a big deal when somebody on this season like betrays an alliance or whatever because mm -hmm. it had never happened before. Um, there's, I think we get to hear our first instance of I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I was literally thinking <laughs> nobody knew that people weren't there to make friends. Right. <laughs> um, so from that, from like a historical perspective, it's been really interesting uh, to watch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is Survivor actually where I'm Not Here to Make Friends originated? Well, I don't Can, Cannot know. confirm. Right. Sure. Um, let's see. When... Uh, this is neither here nor there, so we can definitely... Yeah, okay, so yeah, the first season of The Bachelor aired in 2002, which mm -hmm. is the other franchise that that catchphrase is kind of famous in. So yeah, the um, Survivor would predate The Bachelor sure, for sure. that. Cool. Um, well, what is stuck in my head, uh, HBO has morphed into HBO Max, and, you know, people's apps are probably very confused right now. Uh, I just call it HBO without really knowing which version of it I'm using. Um, but the important part of all this is that uh, among their release-ish, update, whatever, offerings is uh, the entirety of the Studio Ghibli canon, which uh, has been very exciting and wonderful. Uh, Studio Ghibli movies have been very difficult to get outside of physical copies in the U.S. They're not available for streaming until now. Um... So, uh, last night, uh, we watched The Wind Rises, which is the 2013, um, Miyazaki movie about a, uh, a airplane designer in pre-World War II and during World War II Japan. Um, I think it's the last Miyazaki movie made so far? It's the last one that had Miyazaki as a studio head. Okay. 
It's um, not the last Studio Ghibli film. Right, right. Uh, seen it before. Watched it in theaters and loved it. Um, watched it again. Loved it again. Um, listened, beautiful movie. Yeah, beautiful movie. Absolutely gorgeous. I, it's a Miyazaki movie, so it's perfect. Um, <laughs> I did listen to it in... Uh, like, we did do the, the subtitles... Um, which I, I loved, especially because it is such a Japanese movie, both like history and, and feel and everything. Um, but I was bummed out to learn that Werner Herzog did one of the voices in the English dub, and I kind of want to go back and just watch those scenes. With oh, the you English really dub. should. You should. You. So Studio Ghibli, I think, does stellar yes. English dubs. Yes. Um, I frequently will watch those movies multiple times because all of the voice casting is great. Mm-hmm. We watched Hell's Moving Castle a couple weeks ago, and it's like, oh, I, like Billy Crystal, I'm always watching that one with the English. <laughs> Christian Bale's a little weird on that casting, but Billy Crystal totally, like, overwhelms it. All right. So, uh, that is what is stuck in our heads. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to go real deep into Watchmen. So, stick around. And we are back. So today is going to be all about Watchmen uh, because we're going to explore the idea of uh, adaptations by looking at a work that for the longest time was sort of considered unadaptable, uh, which now has two adaptations, um, which are radically different from each other. So uh, the book we're we're talking about is Watchmen, uh, like I said at the top, 1986-87 graphic novel by Alan Moore and David Gibbons. Um, it was and, and continues to be a seminal work of graphic novels and even just normal novels as it sort of deconstructed the superhero and the comic book genre, um, creating psychologically complicated characters. Uh, basically, the premise is that a, a, a superhero has been murdered and we're trying to figure out who did it and why. And it ends with a giant squid being teleported into New York City Um uh, framing it as a uh, alien attack, which ends the Cold War, leads to peace between the U.S. and Russia, um, and and solving the po- the looming conflict of global nuclear annihilation. Um, it has characters such as Doctor Manhattan, a uh, glowing blue superhuman, um, Night Owl, a schlubby Batman-like character, and Rorschach, a sociopath who uh, wears a mask uh, that changes all the time. Um, in 2009, Zack Snyder adapted this graphic novel almost scene for scene, except for the very ending, which he changed, um, in, in ways that, uh, uh, having rewatched the movie for this, it's truly astonishing how much he literally just adapted the comic, uh, scene for scene, shot for shot, using the same needle drops uh, that are, are, you know, referenced in the graphic novel. Uh, Ten years later, so in 2019, uh, Damon Lindelof made a spiritual successor and literal sequel to the graphic novel um, in his HBO series, which is set in the modern day rather than in a uh, alternate 1980s. 
Um, I guess it's an alternate modern day. An alternate modern yeah, day. Yeah, alternate modern day. Um, featuring some of the same characters, Ozymandias, um, Silk Spectre, and Dr. Manhattan return, uh, along with a host of new characters and an uh, entirely new dynamic. I'm pretty sure Lori would get mad at you I, for referring to her as Silk Spectre I, rather than her name. <laughs> I will be honest, I called her Silk Spectre because I totally blanked on her actual name. <laughs> Sorry. Um... Uh, so, so that's what we're dealing with here. Um, we're sort of going to be talking about adaptations in general. We're probably going to spend a lot of time, or may, maybe not a lot of time, who knows, we'll spend some time talking about uh, the 2019 HBO Watchmen, which we both love and which is very resonant with uh, right now, um, which is one reason we sort of picked this as the topic for this episode. Um, Martha, I was just doing a lot of talking. You want to weigh in or get this conversation started at all? Yeah, so I think it would actually be kind of valuable at first to talk about the relationship that we have which, with each of these stories, mm -hmm. um, because I know that my exposure to and relationship to the original comic and also the movie are pretty formative as to my opinions and feelings about them. Um, I don't know if this made the recording last week, um, but I threw out some pretty... Uh, audacious claims audacious claims <laughs> um, and i just want to take a moment to uh i guess defend my opinions uh the claims that i made um and the one that i stand by is that in general i enjoy adaptations of alan moore's work more than i enjoy the work itself and that particular claim is still true um <laughs> Watchmen is a book for which I recognize its historical import to the world of comics and graphic novels. I don't think, I think it is relevant now as a piece of archival history mm -hmm. in graphic novel, like the formation of graphic novels. Like it, it did unequivocally great things in sort of making comics making people see that comics are a relevant format. Mm -hmm. um, if I was going to recommend somebody a, a comic, like a deconstruction of the superhero genre, I would not go with Watchmen anymore. I think Watchmen walked so that better books could run. Hmm. What, what would you go with for a deep, like specifically for a deconstruction of the superhero genre? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I would give people leaving Megalopolis by Gail Simone and... Hmm, I don't know this one. And Jim Calafiore. Uh, Gail Simone is one of my personal favorite writers. Mm -hmm. I think she does great stuff. Uh, she clearly... She has a great and deep respect for the superhero genre. So one of the things that I, I think that Leaving Megalopolis has kind of over Watchmen is that it is written by somebody who loves superhero comics rather than somebody who has only contempt for them. <laughs> um, but is not, but it's still somebody who is being critical of the format. So that, it's, that it's is what I would. It is a deconstruction. It is a criticism. Um, I think it's way more accessible. Um, and I, I, I think it's a better, <laughs> I think it's a better book. Um, <laughs> One of the problems with Watchmen being like in the canonical place that it is, is that for many, for, I, I 
hesitate to say many, but certainly for some readers, it is their first and only exposure to graphic novels or comics. And it's hard to have your first exposure be like a deconstruction when, I mean, at like at this point in the year 2020, everything is superheroes. So that's actually not that big of a problem. But in the 90s, when it's like superheroes, yeah, you know, like Adam West Batman. Okay. Um, they're like reading a deconstruction before reading the construction, I think warped some people's understanding of what comics should what be or could be yeah right well and then like the 90s became an edgy time in comics i i think watchman was partly responsible for that oh for sure and and part of it i think was the like that's popular but you need to know what was constructed you need to have something constructed first before you start deconstructing everything yeah you need to understand what you're looking at yeah um but yes i and you, you, you also have a complicated relationship with Zack Snyder films. I do. I do. Um, and I, I will not sit here and try and argue that his adaptation of Watchmen is good. Um, I think that it is an incredibly faithful visual adaptation that somehow surgically removes almost all meaning from it. <laughs> the, one, the one exception to that and I will go to the mat for this change is I think it was incredibly um, well pitched for him to change, to excise the giant space squid and change that particular plot element to um, the kind of nuclear accident that he changes it to. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the, um, Causing or having having the incident seem like it was caused by Dr. Manhattan makes a lot of the like nuclear scare stuff read better, I guess. Sure, because it's not 1988 when that was actually a thing on everyone's mind. So since we're bringing it to 20, like 2009, it creates a, a stronger through line of that. Yeah, and also like the... Um, it, it ties in better thematically, I think, with the accusations that he is causing, like, radiation cancer in people that he's had contact with. Mm -hmm. um, it, and honestly, e even in a two-and-a-half, three-hour movie, however long this thing Far is... Far too long. Explaining that giant psychic space squid... <laughs> like, like even the t even the TV show just kind of assumes that you already know the deal with it. <laughs> like, That's like, a good point. Like the, the TV show is like, yeah, this thing happened. It's called Eleven Two. Whatever, move on. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I actually thought that that was a fairly intelligent adaptive choice for Snyder to make. Yeah um, my my take on the movie is that it is. It is my, my, uh, like, I have, I, my opinion on Snyder is that he is great at composing beautiful images and has no idea how those images are supposed to work together to tell a coherent story. And this is, I think, a perfect example where he is perfectly composing moving images that are directly lifted from the comic and look great. But after three or four of them in a row, it's like, these things are not connected to each other at all. Um, yeah. 
part of the problem, I think, is because his adaptation is so faithful, Watchmen is a 12-issue graphic novel. Each issue has a mini-arc in itself because it was released, you know, monthly. Um, so it tells a wider story, but it does so in 12 discrete chunks. A film traditionally has three to five acts. Snyder doesn't change the structure, so what you have is a two-and-a-half, three-hour movie, which is broken into 12 mini-acts that don't have the same... Because it's a film and not a book, we are... The flow is all off. Um, it's just... It feels overstuffed. It feels like it's lurching from, from plot point to plot point um, because it doesn't have those, like... Even when you're reading the comic all in, in one combined omnibus, it has chapters, you know? So you're like, oh, that's the end of a chapter. Whereas in a film, it's just, oh, it's next scene. Um, so it feels incredibly disjointed on a macro-structural level, but then also even on a micro-structural level, because Snyder, uh, you know, is bad at editing. <laughs> yeah, and also because he is so committed to the aesthetic mm -hmm. of the piece rather than the messaging. Yes. Um, he makes some of the some of the issues that I have with the original material become even more egregious in the adaptation, mm -hmm. uh, specifically the role that the female characters have in it. Um, I, I, I like how you say the role because there are multiple female characters and they all serve the exact same role. And that 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 role is to um, help the male characters deal with their own emotional issues and pain. Mm hmm. Um, <laughs> I actually quite like Malin Ackerman, who plays Laurie in the movie. I, I like her in the role. I think she is doing her very best with weak material. Yeah. Um, but the fact of it is that even though there are, um, two, arguably three main f women characters in the book, their characterization is so thin and exists almost exclusively for the benefit of the story arcs of the male characters that it, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you, you, you're saying that I'm like, I can't even think of a single third, like the only other third female character I can think of is, um, and here's the thing. I don't remember her name, but, uh, John Osterman's John's wife. wife yeah. yeah. Um, but like she, she, she's not even like her named care. Her name is basically John's wife. Like I know she has one, but um, Janie, 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 um, which I only know because I'm looking at it right now on Wikipedia. Right. So she exists for to help John tell his story, and then to get cancer yeah. and be mad about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, so we have this, this, you know, the, the text, and I agree with you a lot on the on Watchmen, the graphic novel. Um, I like it more than you do, I think, but I'm not, uh, you know, it's a product of its time in many ways. Um, its fears are about nuclear Armageddon and the Cold War between uh, the U.S. and Soviet Russia, which even at the time seems like it might have been a couple years out of date. Uh, well, and maybe I, not. I do think, I do think that. Um, Alan Moore is very good about like his his work is incisive for the time periods that he writes in. Yeah, I don't know that that means that it ages 
very well. Right. Um, there are many problems with the text, including the one you were bringing up about the fact that there are, like, <laughs> no meaningful female characters other than, like, Lori and kind of her mom, and they exist to serve the same role. Um, uh, the, the psychological complexity of the time is still certainly there, but, um, and I don't think this is the fault of Moore and Gibbons themselves, but too many edgy bros have been like, Rorschach, he's great. That's, he's the real hero of this, uh, well, and that would be, I think, my biggest nit to pick with the Snyder adaptation is because I think Zack Snyder thinks that, too. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, Zack Snyder definitely thinks that because uh, he's super cool. Um, and if you just have a loose understanding of, of graphic novels and, and reading text, I guess <laughs> you might think that, too, because he's wearing a trench coat. He he is in the iconography of the the neo-noir antihero, um, but he's also a like sociopath um they just should have they they all all those bros should have been into constantine instead (laughs) (laughs) yes um i i I do think the graphic novel does a better job at show at not presenting rorschach in a in in as positive light um oh for sure yeah snyder obviously i don't think i don't think warren gibbons thought that rorschach was their good guy right right um so that's sort of those two texts. We're, we're combining them because they're like, you you put it perfectly where where you said Snyder perfectly copied like the look, but surgically removed the entire spirit of the thing uh, in his adaptation. Um, well, and I am a person who has defended a number of different adaptations of various things. I am not somebody who always believes that the source material is superior. Mm-hmm. Um. I do think that if you're going to adapt a story, particularly if you're going to adapt it to a different format, I want to know what you are saying. Like, how, what are you using that material to say? Right, what are you bringing to the table? And I don't think that Snyder's adaptation is saying anything. I I agree. I think it's, it, it, Watchmen is a graphic novel that he liked a lot, and he is a movie director, and he likes movies. And wouldn't it be cool if we could watch it as a movie? And honestly, this is my biggest problem with like the live action Disney remakes. It's like watching this at the end of the day, I just kind of wish I was watching the original one. Mm -hmm. And since I don't usually wish that I was reading Watchmen, (laughs) it becomes a question of like, well, why am I watching this at all? I will say that I saw... I saw Watchmen in the theater when it came out and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it's a fun movie. I just think that like 98% of Zack Snyder's work, it doesn't hold up under a microscope. I, I also saw it in theaters. Uh, I was probably not super sober. I remember being like both excited and disappointed as, as we were walking out. Um, and rewatching it for this, I just felt like it was a slog of a film. Have you ever watched the version where they intercut the animated Black Freighter cartoon oh. into the film? No, I haven't. That might be a worthwhile experience for you, because I do think that excising that from the live action sequences was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, because that. But now we're talking about a three-hour film instead of a a two-and-a-half-hour film. Oh, oh no. no. You're talking about a a four-and-a-half-hour movie. Good lord. (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen, I just rewatched this. I am not prepared to, to go watch it again anytime soon. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, but I do think that helps restore some of the like, oh, Zack Snyder didn't understand or care about any of his original material <laughs> um and, and we're talking about of course in the graphic novel there is a graphic novel or a comic within the comic um that hits on some of the main themes of the comic but presented through a pirate story um in much the same way that in the 2019 hbo adaptation there's a show within a show uh which sort of tells you the backstory and the history of of uh, masked vigilantes in this alternate America. Um, yeah, I think we should get into the show now because I have a lot to say. I think so too, it. which is why I'm <laughs> trying to make this transition. Uh, Wonderful. <laughs> um, so if Zack Snyder perfectly captured the look and entirely destroyed the spirit of the graphic novel, the 2019 HBO show was almost the opposite. Um, it's set in a alternate but contemporary America, so stylistically it looks very different than, um, uh, than you know, either the graphic novel or the Zack Snyder book, uh, or uh, whatever, Zack Snyder movie. Uh, but it captures the feel and the ideas and the, the, I don't know, the spirit of the graphic novel while doing a lot that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, you have a lot to say on it, so go ahead. I don't think it captures the spirit of the graphic novel. <laughs> mm. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, I think the graphic novel and the show, I think the show is using um, characters and tone to say something different. Um, I mean, I guess if we're, if we're assuming that the, um, if we're assuming that the spirit of the graphic novel is capturing a generational fear and holding that up under a microscope, then yes. Yeah. Um, well, and, and being a, uh, you know, I, I, I'm definitely not arguing that it's addressing the same generational fear, but it's it's capturing the zeitgeist. It's, it's drilling down into a specific, as you say, generational fear. Um, it's doing it in a somewhat revolutionary way. Um, capturing like i when the the show came out it definitely captured the conversation um it feels big it feels bold it feels like what a a, a 2020s 2010s watchman would be i guess i don't understand what you mean when you say that that's fair um like i i agree with you that like it's not about um you know the the threat of of uh, global nuclear war it's about um, racial tensions and white supremacy in America and generational trauma um, and and like the, uh, the role of police uh, which all feels very much in the zeitgeist of, of the 20 teens in a way that the threat of global nuclear war felt like in the zeitgeist of the 80s sure I don't think that those really are concepts that the original material engages with which ones everything you just said except for the global nuclear war part well that that is the that is what the original um right right that's that's what i mean like like the the hbo adaptation is grappling with with what is in our zeitgeist the graphic novel is grappling with what was in its zeitgeist but they're grappling with it in similar ways explain <laughs> um when you say similar ways what what yeah do yeah, you... yeah yeah like as as both the backdrop and the um, 
bedrock, I guess, of the story that they're trying to tell. Um, the, 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 the fears of nuclear Armageddon are, and yeah, like basically, yeah, the few, the fears of nuclear Armageddon are sort of in a way suffused through the original Watchmen and inform a lot of its plot. Um, like basically Ozymandias' whole deal, uh, in a way that the problems of race relations in America and the dangers of white supremacy are infused throughout uh, the HBO Watchmen and are in like a, a bedrock part of the plot in the sense that it's a bunch of white nationalists who are part of the bad guys. Yes, I, I, I might be being argumentative for no reason mm -hmm. um, at the moment, because I, I do think that the show is a fairly stunning achievement. Um, one of the things I think, one of the things that I very, very desperately want to talk to you about is the, um, what's the, the Hooded Justice character. Mm -hmm. So the Hooded Justice was one of the original Minutemen, the original superhero groups. And in the TV show, he is shown to be um, Regina King's character's grandfather. So we find out that the Hooded Justice is a, is a black man. Mm -hmm. um, this is... So I have been reading a lot of criticism and analysis of the Watchmen kind of canon uh, to prepare for this episode. Um Hooded Justice is canonically not only white, but also a Nazi. So I'm extremely interested in the fact that Damon Lindelof made these choices with this character. I don't know if he was aware of that particular detail. You have to kind of dig to figure it out. Um, the article that I was reading mentions that it's only really revealed in... Um, like a DC branded Watchmen RPG. Oh, uh, huh. In the in the book itself, um, it is hinted that the Hooded Justice is this German wrestler, uh, which is the take that the show within a show is kind of exploring, and we find out that that's not actually true. Right. I didn't realize that the German wrestler was a Nazi. Well, uh, and I don't. Like I said, this was this was a detail, or not a Nazi. <laughs> this is even better. Uh, member of the KKK. Oh, fun. Yeah. But like I said, that is not contained within the text of the comic. That was an extra material sure. uh, point made canon by DC. Um, but it does feel kind of deliciously subversive for Lindelof to have said, not only are we making this character um, black, but we're also making him a, like we're co-opting the symbolism of lynching uh to tell a story about generational trauma right uh we're gonna have him fight clans members rather than be one right while displaying this incredibly uh yeah the symbol uh, the the rope around his neck as part of his costume right um um, but but on the other hand, he has to like he whitens up the skin around his eyes to like pass as a white guy, because uh, even at, like he he knows that the only way he can fight crime in this way is to pass as white, um, which is part of what the show is is grappling with and dealing with. So like for him, it's coming directly out of his own uh, lynching experience, 
Um, but for people seeing him, it doesn't necessarily read that way. I mean, I guess it inherently does read that way, but more as like a hangman type situation. What with the hood? You know, going back to my original point about adaptations, I feel very strongly like he's using this material to tell a whole new story. Like he's, he's using characters that we know, um, and like story beats that we recognize uh, to tell a story about a black woman and generational trauma and kind of the circular nature of history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was very curious about his writer's room um, going into this. And I was reading an interview in Vulture with... Um, Cord Jefferson, who wrote, co-wrote the episode um, where we find out about Hooded Justice, where... um, That episode is so good. Yes, where Angela has her, like, extended flashback. Mm -hmm. Um, And Johnson is African-American, and he uh, mentions a couple things that I want to bring up as, you know, sort of commending Lindelof for actually doing the work. Um, First of all, their writer's room was split almost evenly between um, black and white people and also evenly between men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, And also there is a drop of the N-word in this episode that Lindelof wanted to cut and Johnson argued to keep which feels like such a nice reversal of like the white people who want so badly to say the n-word yeah yeah because it's historically accurate or whatever um and the you know the black writer who for whom this is a more personal story being the one to say no this is what they would have said Mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh lindloff has been clear that it was a very intentional choice to have a uh like he actively wanted a a very diverse writer's room and in in interviews and things is very clear that this show was a like he's the showrunner but it was a collaborative process sort of all the way up and down um and yeah just like Anytime anyone is like, oh, if we're having diversity hiring, then we're not going to get the best people. First off, racist. Second off, Uh uh, clearly, like, this is an example where having more unique and diverse voices in the room is going to create not just a good product, but an objectively better product, because you're not just in the same echo chamber that every other writer's room is in. Um, It also meant that they could tell a story about black pain without it feeling pornographic. mm Mm-hmm. And without it appealing to or appeasing white fragility. Like, yes. this is not a comfortable show to watch, and it shouldn't have been. Yes. Um, I am one of the many people who learned about the Tulsa race riots from watching this show. That was not a thing that I had heard about. Um, I read a little bit about it before the episode aired before the pilot episode aired because reviewers were like hey you should know about this thing mm-hmm. um which kind of sets the tone for the whole show um but this is the kind of you know this is 
you know, how many how many Hollywood movies ostensibly about black people have we seen that end up centering a white experience to make it more palatable for a white audience? <clears throat> Notebook. <clears throat> Uh, not notebook, green book, green book, <clears throat> green book. Um, the help, the help. Uh, Netflix's <laughs> number one show right now, or whatever movie. Um, and so it's, I I don't want to say it's refreshing because it's not refreshing, um, but this is definitely a show that does not care about your white sensibilities. Right, Don Johnson, the ostensible good white guy in episode one, is revealed to be a clans uh, member uh, right. at the end of uh, episode one. And I'm sure that he would have would have described Angela, you know, this woman who he has mentored and has been friends with as like, Oh, she's one of the good ones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, this, this show does a great job at grappling with like the subtlety, like the, the varied natures of racism and white supremacy. Um, because it's not all just, uh, you know, like the, the interpretation of like the Southern hick who's dropping the N word all the time. Um, and and just hates all black people like no there is there are so many facets of white supremacy and of racism um this adding the the show adding the additional wrench uh of the of vietnam being the 51st state so we not only have uh you know african-american racism we also have vietnamese racism um so let me ask you how did you feel about um Apart from the fact that this reveal made for the best episode of TV that I have seen in possibly 10 years, <laughs> um, how did you feel about the Dr. Manhattan reveal? Um, I, so I loved that episode. Yeah, I mean, the episode is fantastic. Like the, the episode where we find out that um, Dr. Manhattan has been kind of in hiding as Angela's husband for the past however many years. Um, and getting to see the episode where they fall in love um, as, you know, him as Dr. Manhattan rather than this um, alter ego that he had to adopt. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it's, it's, like I said, it is an astoundingly emotionally impactful episode. Um, I did have to spend a lot of time thinking about how I felt about this choice to make John Osterman a black character. I, I wasn't sure. I, and I can only speak to this from a white person's experience. Um, but I, I, that didn't wholly sit super well with me. So I, um, not at the time, but actually literally right now as we were talking, I thought back to, there's a line from the graphic novel of uh like when when um dr manhattan sort of first show like is announced to the world um the uh nixon i think says uh we want the american people to know or we, we want the world to know that superman is real and he is american this kind of deliciously shifts that where it's like we want people to know that uh superman is real and he is african-american um which like, when, when you think of, like, what that original line in the graphic novel means, it's like, haha, now the Soviets can't, you know, like, it, since it's about U.S.-Soviet relations, the graphic novel, like, that's the, that's the thing that changes history. Um, this felt similar where, like, yeah, he's in, like, the, the idea of a, a black Dr. Manhattan um, is, because even when he's blue, he definitely, like, is, is visually coded, like, he's 
uh, yeah, it's the, it's the actor. Right. It's, um, uh, mm-hmm. yep. Can't, uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen. Yes. Yeah. Who is fantastic by the way. Yes. Yes. Um, um, I guess the problem that I have with that assertion is that when Dr. Manhattan is still John Osterman, like before the accident, mm-hmm. he's still a white guy. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, Dr. Manhattan is a shape-shifting giant blue person, so he can assume any form he wants. I'm not... No, I mean, like, before he's Dr. Manhattan. Right. He's a white guy. Mm-hmm. So I guess the part that I was kind of ishy on is... Now he's that, a black guy. That code switching. Yeah, I, I get that, but to me, it... it I didn't have a problem with it specifically because in Watchmen, like Dr. Manhattan goes from being more connected to reality to like increasingly disconnected to it. Um, And I think that that carries through in this where he is, he kind of has to meet um, Sister Midnight, uh, uh, Angela Abar to sort of relearn his humanity, um, like to reconnect and reground it. So it makes sense to me that he sort of would have gone off into space, losing all, all sense of humanity, as it were, coming back, meet and, and fall in love with Angela Abar, and therefore take a, uh, like a black persona instead of his blue persona. Um, because, like, this is who he's grounding his humanity with now. Yeah. Well, and I, again, I'm... A white woman. Right. So yeah. any any criticism that I have over this choice is secondary. Um, yeah, is is secondary. Right. It's definitely a bold statement, and I I appreciate what it does for the narrative. I I also just inherently love it as you know anytime a- anytime anyone is. Uh, a, a, a recurring theme on this episode is that fandom is bad, or or frequently can be, and so the the howls of uh you know desecration that arise from certain aspects of the internet fandom community whenever someone is cast that they don't like uh, in any particular role. Um, this is just a sort of such a, a delicious, well, almost and- like you know f you directly to that. Yes. Um, also, I'm right now kind of skimming over an article in The Atlantic that is uh, partially an interview with um, Yaya Abdul-Mateen about his character. Mm-hmm. And they bring up an important point, um, which because I did not have a chance to rewatch this whole series before filming this up or before recording this episode, um, when John makes the decision about what his disguise what his alter ego is going to be he lets angela choose Hmm. so the choice is more a function of what she thinks will be expedient Mm -hmm. and what will make her comfortable rather than a decision like he he lets her lead that decision and she picks um the the body of a deceased african-american man um as his as his alter ego to adopt um which makes it 
a choice driven by the agency of a black woman, mm-hmm. which actually super rules. So <laughs> <laughs> that was, so I, when I was watching the show as it aired, I, every episode was great, but I also had a very hard time kind of envisioning how the whole thing was going to gel into one cohesive thing. Yes. Um, Cause I do think that you have to hang on until the end to mm-hmm. kind of understand what Lindelof is doing. So at the end of every episode, I did have kind of a moment of that was great, but <laughs> what did I, I hope watch? he, I hope he knows what he's doing. Yeah, uh, and yeah. then it turned out that he did. So, well, and, and um, so I've got two thoughts on this one. The first one is, uh, as you were saying, like um, it's, it's driven by the agency of a black woman, unlike Watchmen, the graphic novel, women are absolutely centered in this. There are, three major female characters and like the main character uh, Angela Abar is herself a black woman um but then you have uh you know the incredible um uh wow why am I forgetting her name Jean Smart the incredible Jean Smart as Laurie Blake uh, and oh. then uh, Hong Chow is Lady True um oh my god Wait, I love I love a female bad guy yeah yeah and this has, like, it has a female bad guy in Lady Trow, uh, and then it has, uh, like, Lori Blake is not a bad guy, but she is, at various points, in opposition to Angela Abar, who is sort of our, like, the, the person we're rooting for. Um, so it's it's great dynamics across the board. Um, those are kind of the three leads of the show. Uh, and, th- and then, of course, you have... Um, uh, What's his name? Uh, Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons, like, hanging out <laughs> on Europa or whatever, doing his own uh, separate fantasy world, which is also amazing. God, that um, was good. <laughs> uh, but the other thing, in terms of, like, the format of the adaptation, I think one one of the many things that sunk the movie is that it slavishly held to the 12-act structure when that is not how movies are built. This, as a serialized television show, was able to go eight episodes, nine episodes. Um, And so much like a graphic novel, you have each episode has to be a self-contained story, but it also has to tell a wider story as a whole. Um, And just the medium of television is designed much more like a serialized graphic novel to incorporate those, those arcs in that way. Um, well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, thoroughly hope you enjoyed this in-depth discussion of Watchmen. Uh, I think we could both easily recommend rewatching the HBO show. Um, if you want to, you could rewatch the book, or reread the book. Uh, <laughs> and if you really have nothing better going on, uh, I guess the movie's available, too. Um, so, uh, next episode, we are going to be doing sort of more of a book report than a normal episode um with everything going on right now many people are educating themselves on race in america and the role of police in america and institutional inequalities um and we are doing the same so we are going to be talking about what we are consuming to sort of do a better job at educating ourselves on uh, numerous different axes in this, um, in in that, you know, world. Um, your homework is to be doing the same thing. Uh, we're not going to tell you now what we're, what we're consuming to do this. Uh, that'll be in the next episode. 
Um, but you should be seeking out your own resources. There are many, many websites and blogs that are, and, and Twitter feeds that have uh, these resources available. I believe the New York Times uh, book, uh, top 10 uh, books for nonfiction were all about um, racial inequalities and systemic inequalities in America. Uh, so, you know, if you have nowhere else to look, peruse that list. Uh, however, I do want to point out that the number one person on that list was a white author. So maybe read black authors instead. I was going to say, and also where you can um, try to seek out uh, writers of color. Yeah. Um, this is not to say that white authors and white historians don't have uh, important information for you. But I think right now at this moment in time, we are, um, Pete and I are trying to prioritize black voices uh, and I think that that is generally a good rule of thumb uh, now at this moment in history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, similarly, you can like that's a lot of nonfiction. You can also be seeking out fiction uh, that does the same thing because fiction plays an important role in how our culture sort of processes things and, and changes. Um, so yeah, next yeah next week we'll have some recommendations for you. We'll talk about what we have uh, been seeking out on our own. Um, that's that's yeah. for next time. Yeah, um, so it's a it's an independent study uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can find us. Uh, did you do your homework on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever else fine podcasts are sold? Uh, please rate and review us if you enjoyed the show, or even if you didn't. Um, that really helps us with the SEO and the the um, algorithm gremlins. Don't rate us if you didn't like it. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. <laughs> or, or give us a five-star rating, even if you didn't like us. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DYDYHpodcast. And you can uh, find us on Facebook by searching Did You Do Your Homework? You can also email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Martha, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me anywhere on the web at Magical Martha. Um, most recently on my Twitter feed, I was uh, tweeting some alternate titles by authors of color to read instead of Harry Potter. Now that J.K. Rowling has just fully stuck her face in it. Um, and we are, and by we, I mean me, ready to just dispense with her. Turfs get nerfed. Um, any other did I thing tell you, did I tell you just really quick sidebar? Um, did I tell you about the time I got Twitter banned for suggesting that turfs should set themselves on fire? <laughs> uh, you did. And also, uh, the president of the United States can say many, many worse things on Twitter and nothing happens. True. No Twitter jail for him. Um, I have him blocked on Twitter. I also have JK Rowling blocked on Twitter, which means every time something like this happens and i see like an angry retweet with the tweet blocked out i'm like uh i have to i have to look and see what this idiot said why do we care about what she's saying stop right. caring right that that is actually the good the best point if she's not publishing it for money stop stop publishing it I would say that even if she is publishing it for money, stop reading it. I, that's that's fair. It's just a different valence. If she's doing it for money, then we can like argue about it. If she's doing it for free, stop engaging with it entirely. Yes. Um, yeah. What else do you want to plug? Um, 
I do another podcast that updates on the same feed on alternating Wednesdays. Uh, Marin, Pete's wife, and I watch streaming teen movies, and then we talk about them. Our movie for our upcoming episode is Skate Kitchen, which you can catch on Hulu. Um, I also brought my newsletter back from the dead today and actually wrote about what I've been reading while uh, socially isolating. Mm. You can find that at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Um, I think that's it. Cool. That sounds good to me. All right. Well, independent study for next week. Do some reading. Do some watching. Um, and until then, class dismissed.